Well, this is the first day of Advent. We're excited about it. And we're going to light, light the first Advent candle. We're going to have April come up to the front. And these candles represent the four Sundays leading up to Christmas. The white one will be actually when we're together on, we'll light that on Christmas Eve. But April is going to light the first Advent candle. And as you watch her do that, Advent does mean arrival. It means the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it reminds us of his coming. And today is all about that. It's actually going to be about the forerunner uh, prophesied in the book of Malachi. But before we go there, we're going to be in Luke chapter 1. We're taking a break from the book of Exodus and from the book of Malachi on Wednesday nights. And we're going to do a series of messages that will take us all the way up to Christmas Eve and then the day after Christmas. So this year, Christmas Eve is on a Friday. We'll do one Christmas Eve service. I think it's a 5.30 start time. And then uh, Saturday is Christmas Day. We expect you to be here at 5 a.m. on that day. <laughs> what? Just kidding. You'll have that day off. And then uh, the day after Christmas, instead of going to a sale, come here. We're going to do one Christmas service all together on the day after Christmas, and it's going to be a blessed time of rejoicing in the Lord. So we are going to turn our hearts toward the arrival of the Christ and the Advent season. We're going to be in Luke chapter 1. If you have your Bible with you, go ahead and open to Luke chapter 1. When you have it, would you stand for the reading of God's Word? We're going to read a portion of our text. Luke 1, we'll pick it up in verse 13. Luke 1. 13 says, the angel said to him, don't be afraid, Zacharias, Luke 1, 13, for your petition has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you will give him the name John. You will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will drink no wine or liquor and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him, that's Messiah, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the, of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared. For the Lord. You may be seated. Father, thank you so much for this first day of Advent as we uh, celebrate the arrival of our King coming into the world to save us. Uh, prophecies, many prophecies written about Jesus in the Old Testament hundreds of years before he came. But something that we may not be as familiar with is prophecies were also written about a forerunner or a messenger, a messenger who would prepare the way of the Lord. And prophetically, in Malachi and Isaiah, John is prophesied before he was ever born. And then this uh, angel Gabriel tells Zacharias of his coming birth. This is another miracle birth. It's not a virgin birth, but it's a miracle birth in the birth narratives of the Gospel of Luke, telling us about how, how all of this came to be fulfilled because your word always will come to pass. You are true to your promises. And Father, I pray that as we talk about the good news of great joy during this Advent season, that's really going to be our theme throughout all these messages. I pray that you would be glorified. I pray that our hearts would turn back to you if they need to. They would turn toward you and you would turn toward us. Lord, we need you so desperately in this hour. 
And uh, we're, we're praying that you would be with us as we divide the word and as we respond to it, that you might be glorified and pleased with our response. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. amen. Now, the book of Malachi is just a few pages back before the gospel. So you got Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And the last book of the Old Testament is Malachi. And for those of you who are Italian, you might prefer Malachi. Um, it is the final word of God as the Hebrew scriptures close in the Old Testament. There are two prophecies about a messenger and the Messiah. The date of Malachi is agreed upon uh, by scholars to land at about 400 B.C. So right around 400 to 420 B.C., Malachi writes this final book of the Old Testament. It is the final one in our order. It is the final one chronologically. And it actually ends with a prophecy and a warning. Before we get there, let me show you the first prophecy about this messenger. Uh, by the way, Malachi's name means messenger, but he speaks of another, Malachi 3.1. He says, Behold, I'm going to send my messenger. Now, the Lord's speaking through Malachi. And he, the messenger, will clear the way before me, Malachi 3.1. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, so a temple will be standing and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like, this is a simile, he's like a refiner's fire, is the Messiah, the coming one, and like fuller's soap. And he will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi, that's the priestly line, and they were in trouble in Malachi's day and refined them like gold and silver so they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. Now, if you skip over to the last chapter of Malachi, there's another prophecy and it again has the messenger and the Messiah in it. It says this, 4.1 of Malachi. Behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. And the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, that would be a remnant of the sons of Israel, the son of righteousness. Many of the church fathers believe that's a description of Jesus Messiah, those who fear him. So there's going to be judgment, the fire language of verse 1, the day of the Lord coming, furnace, fire, chaff, all of that, but for two, for you who fear my name, a remnant who believe, the son of righteousness, probably the Messiah, will rise with healing in its wings. Life will be given healing, and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. Notice the contrast. Uh, some will be experiencing judgment, others life, and skipping about with joy. And then it says in 4.4, remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah. Now here's a prophecy and a warning. The prophet, before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. And he will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. Now, what 
seems to be the message here is that a messenger is coming. You could say an Elijah-like figure, although it does say Elijah here, who will prepare the way for the coming one and prepare the nation to hear the message of the Messiah. But if the nation doesn't respond to that message, behold, a curse will come. Now, when uh, groups of theologians look at the end times and look at Bible prophecy, there's a camp that's called dispensational and a camp that would be all millennial. And the dispensational camp believes that there's going to be a future appearance of Elijah, perhaps Elijah himself, like in Revelation 11, where it talks about two witnesses in the end days, and that this great and terrible day of the Lord in uh, Malachi 4 is an ultimate day, but sometimes foreshadowed in other times of judgment that Israel experienced, like at the hands of the Assyrians in history, Babylon, uh, Medo-Persia, ultimately Rome. Those in the amillennial camp who largely believe that the book of Revelation was fulfilled at the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70 argue this, that John came exactly as the prophecy states. He began, he began to proclaim the coming of the Lord. His voice went out from the wilderness and people began to come to him. And he began to announce the coming of the Messiah and he was preparing the nation to receive the Lord. But largely, the nation of Israel rejected Jesus as the Messiah, especially the Jewish religious leadership. You can think of the priestly line, etc. Although we will say that on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people come to the Lord at the preaching of Peter, and they're all Jewish people all there for the Feast of Pentecost. So the church was largely Jewish, but as time unfolded, the Gentiles were grafted in, and the Jewish nation as a whole rejected the Messiah. Forty years from the events of the uh, announcement of John the Baptist, announcing the Messiah, the life, death, miracles, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, right around 30 AD, in about 40 years, the Roman legions came, and this is simply just world history I'm giving you. They invaded Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. And there are those who would argue that that is the curse that came upon Israel in AD 70. Now, I believe that there's going to be a future fulfillment of either Elijah himself or an Elijah-like figure announcing the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and the ultimate day of the Lord. But even in that first century setting, you can see how this happened. And Jesus said, if you're willing to accept it, John the Baptist is the Elijah that was to come. At Jewish Passover meals, if you've ever experienced a Seder meal with a Jewish family, some are believers in the Messiah, so they believe that Jesus has fulfilled this, but they have something called Elijah's cup. They pour a cup of wine for Elijah, leave a empty place setting at a table, and expect that, or hope, that Elijah might knock at the door, sit down with the family, and announce the coming of the Messiah. In Orthodox Jewish homes, if you will, that don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah, they think Elijah would announce the first coming of the Lord because they don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. But of course, uh, you know, we, we obviously do believe that Jesus is the Messiah. But here you can see the, the announcement, the last word of God before there's 400 years of silence. So Malachi, around 420 to 400 B.C., 
and some four decades or four centuries, I should say, of silence until the prophetic voice of John comes on the scene. Sometimes people put it this way, 400 years of silence from Malachi to Matthew, although that's debated because some people believe that Mark is earlier than Matthew. But the bottom line is 400 years of prophetic silence from Malachi's voice to the voice of John the Baptist. The book of Isaiah describes him as a voice crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord. And as John was baptizing at the Jordan and the nation was coming to him and asking questions about who he was, he looked one day and behold, he said, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And they were asking him questions like, who are you? Are you the Messiah? And he said, I'm the voice crying in the wilderness. Get ready. Jesus is coming. And then John baptized Jesus and the heavens opened and the voice of the Father declared This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The Holy Spirit lighted upon him. John knew that he was the Messiah by that uh, uh, insight that God had given him. And John's ministry ultimately would be to pave the way. Famously, John said, he must increase. The Messiah must increase. I must decrease. So John did his job. John was popular for a season But then he moved people, like even Peter was probably a disciple of John the Baptist, John perhaps, and he pointed them towards the Messiah. That's our job. We're to point people toward the Messiah. John was popular in some circles, you could say, not so popular in others, like when he called out Herod for his illegal marriage to Herodias, and it got his head cut off. I was joking with a pastor friend of mine. We were kind of going back and forth. And he said something like, you know, a friend of his said that, you know, you have a ministry like John the Baptist. He said, how so? He goes, well, every time you speak, somebody wants to cut your head off. (laughs) So uh, anyway, but (laughs) but what happened with John is when he called the king out, it made the illegal wife unhappy. And if you guys know the story, John did get his head cut off. And was actually killed. He, he languished in prison for a long time and even began to question whether Jesus was the Messiah. And so you'll have a lot of preachers in our day telling you that you just need to fulfill your destiny and God's got all of this for you. And what they usually mean is health, wealth, uh, a great job, great family, etc. But when you get to heaven, you can talk to John the Baptist about what destiny actually means. And John the Baptist fulfilled his destiny but he was killed for it. And the, the, really, the church has had martyrs all the way through its history. And so to be faithful to God sometimes calls upon us to pay a price. Of course, in our modern culture, what price do we really need to pay? Sometimes we're ostracized. You know, if we were to stand up at a holiday dinner and call out somebody who had a, an illegal marriage, we might not be invited back next year. I don't recommend that at the Thanksgiving meal. Hey, you're not supposed to be married to her or him. That won't make you popular. But anyway, but John wasn't concerned about popularity. He was concerned about fulfilling God's call on his life. And this leads us into the very first verse of our text, Luke 1.15. If you turn back over there, the Lord describes uh, or the angel describes John in this way and we find out that Gabriel has appeared to Zacharias as he has embarked on his once-in-a-lifetime priestly duty. Luke 1.15 says of 
the forerunner John, he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will drink no wine or liquor, Luke 1.15, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. Now, some of you moms would really appreciate it if your children were filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in your womb. Can I get a witness? They probably wouldn't kick you so much and everything. And then once they came out of the womb, they probably wouldn't throw Cheerios at you from their high chair. It'd be totally spiritual. They'd be praying over the family. Lord, bless my mommy. In Jesus' name, be gracious to her. Right? But anyway, John's greatness is found that he was great, Luke 1.15, in the sight of the Lord. As I read through First uh, and Second Chronicles, I'm doing some devotional reading through that book, which is really all about the kings of Israel and Judah. Israel's the northern kingdom at this time. Judah and Benjamin are in the south. And here's what it basically says. This king did evil in the sight of the Lord. And then, it, then a little bit later, this king did good in the sight of the Lord. You know what the difference was in those kings? The kings that did evil in the sight of the Lord led the nation of Israel to idolatry, to high places, to Asherah poles, to the worship of Baal. They allowed pagan idolatry to occur. And every time that happened, God would say, they did evil in my sight. Every time a king would knock down the Asherah poles, uh, dismiss of the high places and call the nation back to God, God would describe that person, that king is doing what was right in the sight of the Lord. And Jesus said it this way, of those born among women, there is none greater than John the Baptist. So John was the messenger. He was the forerunner preparing the way of the Lord. And his call was to be great in the sight of God. I have an application point for you. I think it's obvious. I think we all spend a lot of time being worried about what other people think of us, how they see us. And I'm not saying that you should show up to places disheveled and, uh, you know, looking like you're a mess. I'm not talking about your physical appearance, but your desire, my desire, should be to be seen great in the sight of the Lord. If I'm great in his sight, everything else will take care of itself. Amen? Amen? But what we tend to do is be so overwhelmed by what other people think of us that oftentimes it renders us almost, we, we do very little for the kingdom of God because we're worried about popular culture. And this has been a plague on the church because when cultural winds blow, the temptation for pastors is to compromise for the sake of the culture. John the Baptist did not do that. His singular call was to prepare the way of the Lord and to call the people back to the Lord. And of course, the reason that he could do it is that he was filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, even from his mama's womb. Jeremiah 1.5 says this, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you, speaking to Jeremiah, I set you apart, and I have appointed you a prophet to the nations." And so John's birth would be a miracle. A professor at the UCLA Medical Center, medical school, asked his students a question. He says, here's the family history. Here's the scenario. The father has syphilis. The mother has TB. They've already had four kids. 
The first is blind, the second has died, the third is deaf, and the fourth has TB. The mother is pregnant, the parents are willing to have an abortion if you decide that's what's best. What do you think? He says to the students. Most of the students decide an abortion is necessary. The teacher responds, congratulations, you have just murdered Beethoven. The way that we see the world, we look at the history of a family and we make a judgment based upon our human eyes. But that's not how God works. And John would be great in the sight of the Lord. He would fulfill his purpose. And I would submit to you, brothers and sisters, that purposelessness is what haunts many people. They find that, you know, they, they get to the pinnacle of a career or a relationship that they thought would save them. And it really doesn't deliver. Because you're going to find that until you fulfill your purpose to know God, serve God, love God, your life is going to be empty. You're never going to have true fulfillment. So notice something about John in Luke 1.15. It says that he would, there would be... Um, he will drink no wine or liquor. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. This is something known as the Nazarite vow. It's recorded, if you're taking notes, in Numbers chapter 6. It's laid out there. And it was a voluntary vow for a season. It's literally called a vow of dedication. And so someone who felt like they wanted to get closer to the Lord would take a vow of the Nazarite, and they would not partake of things that they would normally partake in, like perhaps wine and the like. And that would be a season where they would do that. There are just a few lifelong Nazarites in the Bible. One of them is Samuel. Another one is Samson. And a third one here in the New Testament appears to be John the Baptist, who took a vow of dedication to the Lord totally dedicating his life to what God had for him. And so in Numbers chapter 6, it is laid out as full consecration, no partaking of grapes and wine and so forth. And John, verse 16, Luke 1, will turn back many, not all, but many of the sons of Israel to the Lord their God. This means that many in Israel had turned away from God and John would turn them back to God. And I would submit to you that that is the job of the church in any culture, is to turn hearts back to the Lord. Now, in the case of Israel, they were God's chosen people. And they had obviously turned away from the Lord. There had been 400 years of prophetic silence. Rome was now dominating Israel. And I'm sure a lot of people in Israel felt like they were hopeless there was a prophecy in Daniel that predicted the day that the Messiah would ride into Jerusalem, but maybe they had lost hope for that. And many had turned away from God. And it was when John came to the nation that the nation began to turn back to him. And I would submit to you that in our day, we need a prophetic voice calling our nation back to God. Would you agree? And to the degree that we are filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, and we are about the business of the kingdom, people will hear that message, they'll hear the power of the gospel, they'll, they'll hear God's call. This was the ongoing issue for the nation of Israel. They had turned away. Solomon turned his heart away from the Lord because of his many foreign wives and their false gods. 1 Kings eleven nine, Isaiah 1, 4 says of Israel, Alas, 
a sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly. They've abandoned the Lord. They've despised the Holy One of Israel. They've turned away from him. Jeremiah 8.5 describes the nation as turning away in continual apostasy. It says, Jeremiah 8.5, they refuse to return. And I wrote in my notes here, O Lord, let this season of Advent turn our hearts back to you. Because I know how my heart can be. And it can be easy to become calloused to the things of God or dry to the things of God. But we need a renewal of our hearts. Ezekiel 6.9 puts it this way. And this is an amazing verse. It says, God speaking through Ezekiel, then those of you who escape will remember me among the nations to which they will be carried captive. How I have been hurt by their adulterous hearts, which turned away from me, and by their eyes, which played the harlot after their idols. And they will loathe themselves in their own sight for the evils which they have committed and for all their abominations. And when Peter preached there in Jerusalem, when the people heard Peter's message, their hearts were pricked, and they said, what must we do? How do we respond to this message? They felt awful about the Messiah being crucified in their very day and in their midst. And he said, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Turn back to God. Turn away from this lawless generation and turn to God. And that was John's message, simply put. He was turning people back to the Lord. And all the districts around the Jordan were coming as John preached a baptism of repentance. I wanted to show you a passage in the book of James, if you turn there, towards the back of your New Testament. James is writing to early Hebrew believers who are under a lot of persecution and pressure to go back to the uh, temple sacrifices and abandon their faith in Jesus is Messiah, James 5. And James mentions Elijah here, who obviously is part of that prophecy we read. And he says in James 5.17, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He was just like us. He was human. And he prayed, James 5.17, earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Application. My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth, and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. The responsibility, the call of the church, is to turn people back. Here's the image. If the Lord was here and I turned my back to him, let's just say you and I were having a conversation and you were saying something to me and I just turned my back to you. That, that's the image of one who turns away. Now here's what repentance is. It means to turn back to God in a close, intimate relationship. Repentance is simply a 180 on the road of life. And so John comes to his generation And he calls the nation back to God. He says, repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. And then he, said, he saw the Pharisees. If you turn back to Luke chapter 1, he saw them coming up, the Sadducees coming for baptism. And he said to them, he was politically correct. He said, you brood of vipers, 
who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bring, bring forth fruit in keeping with turning around, in keeping with repentance. Now, as Zacharias is in the temple and he's uh, been given this great privilege, there were many priests at this time, and they had a rotation for priestly service. And it, there's these uh, rotations that are mentioned, I think, in First or Second Chronicles. And there's 24 of these. And so he was chosen by lot to serve this great privilege. They say that priests who had the privilege, it wasn't guaranteed, would only probably do it once in their lifetime. And here's where we get a little bit more about this couple. In the days, Luke 1.5, of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. So he was of the eighth division. This is how they laid out the calendar for service. He had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, so she's from the priestly line as well. Her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous in the sight of God. Notice that. So was their son, and they were walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years. Now, there are actually two miracle births. This is not a virgin birth. This is an older couple who, uh, you know, is, is advanced in years. They've had a long relationship. But as one brother put it at first service, the factory was closed for business. That is, Elizabeth was barren. She could not have children medically. It was impossible. They were advanced in years. It doesn't matter how good the vitamins are at that time, right? They weren't going to have kids. Factory closed for business. And yet, the God who does miracles would give them a child. This is not unusual. Abram and Sarai have a child in their old years. Abraham, 100. Sarah, 90. Come on now. Can you imagine that? That's an older couple having a brand new baby. You need a lot of help from the family, I would imagine. But this has been the story, and the metaphor is this, that oftentimes a barren womb represents a barren land, a land without life, a land that is spiritually dry, a land in need of a miracle. And Elizabeth's womb becomes a picture of the nation of Israel. That right when it looked like nothing good could ever happen again, Rome is dominating. Who will save us? A light dawned. And John got to introduce that light to his generation. What a beautiful thing. John would go, 17 of Luke 1, as a forerunner before him, the Messiah. He would go in the spirit and power of Elijah, that is, in the power of the Holy Spirit, and with the mantle, if you will, of Elijah. The spirit and power of Elijah. Think of Elijah on Mount Carmel. He tells the people in 1 Kings 18, how long will you waver between two opinions? How long will you waffle? If the Lord is God, then serve him. If Baal is God, then serve him. And the people answered him nothing. Elijah's ministry was to call his nation back to God in a time when there was a wicked king and a wicked queen, Jezebel. And he said, look, Time for waffling is over. And it continues prophetically. It says, here's what John would do. He would turn the hearts, turning his nation back to God, always begins in the heart, 17, 
of the fathers back to the children. Now, what does that mean? What had happened, what happened to the fathers during this time in Israel? Well, what was the father's main responsibility in Israel? It was to train the children in the Torah as they walked along the way, Deuteronomy chapter 6, as they, you know, life went on. The father had a responsibility to teach his family God's principles and to say like Joshua, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Brethren, we have an epidemic in our church culture, and it's this, that spiritual leaders of families are largely missing the epidemic in the last 30 years that I've been around the church has been often that women come in with four kids while the husband's at home watching football. But I will say this to you. I do see a movement among the men of God here. We'll do a Thursday morning Bible study. It's 9 a.m. And we often have 25 or 30 guys up in the youth room walking through the word of God and challenging and encouraging and praying for one another. I see some hope. I see men who want to get serious about leading their families. Yeah, that's, that's something to clap for, and I would clap loud. So, but think about it this way. If you've ever wondered, what does it mean that John would turn the hearts of the fathers back to the kids? Here's what it means. I don't think that it necessarily means that dads were MIA. I think what it means is that they were not anchoring their family in who God is. Because if the nation had turned its hearts away from God, then dads had. Amen? Dads were not telling the family, you and I need to follow the Lord. We're going to do this. As for this house, this is what we're doing. That's, that, I believe, reading between the lines, is what was missing. And when the father's hearts returned back to their kids, it's as if they took the mantle back. And John became their example to say, you know what? If he can do it, we can do it. We, we can get serious about God again. And so John's purpose, fulfilled in, in God's power, called the nation back to the family, to saying, hey, let's prepare our hearts to meet the Lord. And literally, the Lord was coming. If you look at Matthew just for a second, go back to Matthew chapter 17. Some people wonder about John the Baptist and was he the literal fulfillment of Malachi 4, or will there be another coming of Elijah? Take a look at Matthew 17. This is an interesting text. Jesus has just been transfigured up on the mountain. He's radiated uh, with a glow, a heavenly glow. The Father has spoken again. This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. Moses and Elijah have appeared on that mount, and now they come down. And so as they were coming down, Matthew 17, 9 from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one which has happened up on the mountain until the Son of Man, that's Messiah, has risen from the dead. His disciples asked him, saying, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? That prophecy in Malachi says Elijah should arrive first, so where is he? And he said, Jesus answered and said, 11, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah already came. Now I see there as a future coming of an Elijah or Elijah type figure at the end of time. And then I see John here. But I say to you, Elijah already came 
and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wish. And of course, he ended up dying. So also the Son of Man, Messiah, is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about who? About John the Baptist. So you can see that John the Baptist was, at least in the first sense, a fulfillment of the coming Messiah or to announce the Messiah. And an Elijah-type figure will announce the second coming of the Messiah. And some people see that fulfilled in Revelation chapter 11. And I'll let you chew on that a little bit more. But I have a question. And here's my question. Did Israel repent at the coming of the forerunner and the coming of the Messiah? I don't think so. Because I don't believe that God would have judged them in AD 70 and had Jerusalem destroyed, had the nation turned back to God. But the nation turned away and God judged them. And this is, of course, every generation has to decide what we're going to believe and who we're going to live for. And Jesus would say of John, if you cared to accept it, he himself is Elijah who was to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. That's Matthew eleven fourteen 14 and 15. So Zacharias had a natural question. Back to Luke 1. So he's in the temple. He's got this great honor of serving, of lighting the incense. Uh, they always kept it going. He's, his service probably happening around the time of Pentecost. Zacharias says to the angel Gabriel, Luke 1.18, How shall I know for certain? For I'm an old man, Luke 1.18, and my wife is advanced in years. Now I have a practical application for you husbands. Notice that Zacharias calls himself an old man, but doesn't call his wife an old lady. He says she's advanced in years. This is biblical wisdom. Do not call your wife my old lady. If you do, prepare to duck. And make sure the dog has had a bath, because you're probably going to be sleeping with that furry animal. Anyway, this is just a little practical wisdom there. By the way, I don't be, appreciate being called an old man either. If I call myself that, that's one thing. But anyway, whatever application you need for that. Uh, so <laughs> the angel, the angelos, the messenger, said to back to him, I am Gabriel. Now notice we find out who this angel was, who stands in the presence of God, maybe right there by the incense altar, as the temple is a copy of what's in heaven. And I've been sent to speak to you, here's our title, to bring you this good news. I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And angels who stand in the presence of God, all VeggieTale fans will say, are real shiny. Now, that should have been enough for Zacharias. He had just expected to go in there, light the incense, and then he would come out and speak the ironic blessing from number six, by the way, which is in the same chapter as the Nazarite vow. That's all he was going to do. Now he sees an angel who's announcing a miracle birth of a child. And Gabriel's appearance brought good news, and he says, I bring you, New King James, these glad tidings. It's Advent season. I'm bringing you good news back to... The verses we read earlier, 13 and 14, the angel said, don't be afraid, Zacharias. Your petition has been heard. What were they praying for? Possibly a son, but perhaps for the repentance of their nation. They were both blameless and righteous. They wanted the people to return to God. And he says, 
your prayer's been heard. Some of you have been praying about stuff for a long time. How long do you think this couple prayed for a son? How long do you think they prayed that their nation would return to God? And they petitioned the Lord and they prayed. And Gabriel shows up and he says, your prayer has been heard. Your petition has been heard by God. Don't be afraid. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you will give him the name John. John means the Lord is gracious. And you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. This is going to be a season of joy for you. But I'm an old man. I just came in to do my priestly duty. No, God's got something much bigger for you than just lighting the incense. He's going to bring the forerunner through you and through your bride as you are well advanced in years. With God, nothing is impossible. Do you believe that? Nothing is impossible with God. That factory was closed for business. But God said, no, I'm going to do a miracle. And your womb will become a picture of a nation that can rise again to life. And so I bring you the good news. And behold, verse 20, you shall be silent. You'll be mute, new King James. You'll be dumb, King James Version. And unable to speak until that day, until the day when these things take place when he's born. Because you did not believe my words, which shall be fulfilled in their proper time. You wouldn't believe You knew there was a prophecy. I came to you. Unbelief, brethren, will always close your mouth. You're at the office and there's a conversation going on about some cultural thing and you know what the Bible says. And if you are not walking close with the Lord, you'll stay silent. You know why? Because you'll feel the pressure of the culture or the pressure of the family. The power of the Holy Spirit and walking close with the Lord will open your mouth when you need to speak, amen? But because Zacharias wouldn't believe, He became mute. He could not speak. And his great honor was supposed to be to light the incense, walk out to the people, and share the ironic prayer. The Lord bless you. The Lord keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. John's name, by the way, means the Lord is gracious. The Lord had shined his face on Zacharias in the temple, but he couldn't pronounce the blessing. He came out and he went... Bummer. I wonder how many times he practiced it for this big day, once in a lifetime. The Lord bless you. You would want to enunciate properly. The Lord keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you. And be, maybe use a, use a Scottish accent, and be gracious to you. You've got to read your Bible and give you shalom, right? And and out for his moment. And, and by the way, when Mary and Elizabeth were talking about their coming children, he was in the corner. He couldn't speak. He had nothing. He was silent until these things were fulfilled. And so what did he do? Well, the people were waiting for Zacharias and wondering what, why the delay? What was going on? But when he came out, he was unable to speak to them And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. I don't know if he was using baseball signs, bunt, hit and run, I don't know. But after the first service, gracious people came up to me and said, no, Pastor Michael, he was doing something like this. How many of you remember angels in the outfield? He probably did something like this. 
And the angel came from heaven. We're going to have a baby. I don't know if that's what he did. But he was making signs to them. But he remained mute. And it came about when the days of his priestly service were ended that he went back home. And after these days, Elizabeth, his wife, became pregnant. And she kept herself in seclusion for five months, saying, This is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked with favor upon me to take away my disgrace among men. If you have an NIV, it says, The Lord has done this for me, she said, in the days when he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. In Jewish culture, to not be able to provide a child for a woman in that culture was the ultimate curse, and they saw it that way, or disgrace. And all these years, Elizabeth was a faithful woman. She prayed and prayed and prayed, and she probably wondered, like a lot of us who pray for things for a long time, Lord, what are you doing? What have I done wrong? Maybe all those questions... And then the Lord in her advanced age opens up her womb. The Lord opens and closes the womb and gives her a miracle child, a forerunner to the Messiah. Father, thank you that you do abundantly beyond what we could ask or imagine. And during this Advent season, we pray that we would be experiencing the miracle of new life in Christ. We would be experiencing our hearts turning back to the Lord our God, as a culture, as a church culture, as pastors and those who serve the Lord in various capacities. We pray over our nation, Lord, that it would turn back to you. We are reeling in many different ways, Lord, and the answer is for us to turn back. Lord, let it start with us, the hearts of the fathers and the mothers, the hearts of pastors and parishioners. Lord, let it start with us. And thank you for this incredible gift you gave to Elizabeth and to Zacharias, the forerunner, who would clear the way for the coming Messiah. And Elizabeth says, you took away my shame. And sin brings shame into our life, Lord, our guilt, the things that we've done wrong, the mistakes we've made, the things that we've failed to do. But thank you that when the Messiah came, he took our shame at the cross. He bore it as though it was his to bring us new life. Thank you that when Jesus came, he lived that perfect life that we could not live and nailed the handwriting of requirements of the law to that cross, took away my guilt and shame and made a way for me to be right with God. Lord, I I just thank you for that, and I thank you for this wonderful church family, and for those of you who are here, maybe watching, and you're not sure that you've done this for the first time. You're not sure that your heart has turned to the Lord. You're You're not sure that you've repented of your sin and trusted in Christ. Today can be your day, the first day of Advent. You can believe. You can trust in him. And it's something this simple, yet this profound. Lord Jesus, I believe you came into the world as the Messiah. I believe, pray it if it's you. You lived the perfect life that I could never live and fulfilled the law. 
I believe you died on that terrible cross for me, bore my shame and punishment. And I believe that you defeated death and rose from the dead. And I'm going to trust in you as my King and my God and my Lord and my Savior. Please renew my heart. Maybe you're a prodigal and your heart has become a bit callous to the things of God. It can happen. And your one desire is, Lord, I want to come back. I want to return my heart back to you, my marriage, my family, my business, everything in my life back to you. Lord, would you hear the prayer of that one that's wanting to come home? And for this precious congregation, maybe they feel like their walk is as good as it's ever been. Praise God. And I pray that they would keep pressing on and moving in that direction. Help us all, Lord. As Advent is birthed in our hearts, let renewal and refreshment come to your people. Fresh vision and passion. And I want to thank you for all that is happening in this fellowship. There's an excitement. There's much going on beyond these walls, Lord. The word of God is echoing out from this place. And I'm so grateful. And I pray that you would bring a harvest of souls that will continue to bring you glory. 